Now, take your Bibles and turn to John, John chapter 12. We're obviously pausing from our Genesis journey to take time this week to really focus upon the Lord's death for us and his rising again. We celebrate the resurrection every Lord's Day and consider these various features of the Lord Jesus' work for us all the time. But it's nice to have a real specialized focus once a year like this, starting today with Palm Sunday, Good Friday, we have a service as well, and then Easter Sunday, of course. Today, I'm taking one of the four passages about Palm Sunday. Every one of the Gospels gives us the account of Jesus entering Jerusalem for that final time to present himself as our substitute to be sacrificed so that we might have eternal life. And we acknowledge that uh, this is necessary for us. We could not be right with God if it were not for what God, Jesus does for us. And it starts here, at least his week of passion, where he lays himself down here in this passage. Interestingly, and the Gospel of John reminds us of something that happened just before it that plays into the story. This is the time when he had just come out of Bethany and had raised a man, a very well-known man named Lazarus, from the dead. Not just the dead. I mean, he was four days dead. Everybody knew he was, he was uh, at that point, in decay. And yet Jesus still raised him again. So that news of what happened there didn't stay in Bethany. Uh, people in Bethany followed Jesus into Jerusalem for Passover, and then other people along the way had heard Jesus was coming. When he got to Jerusalem, there was already word about what had happened. So all of that was making this um, scene even more busy than it would have been otherwise. And that brings us to the passage, the account from John. Here as I read God's holy word, John 12, 9 through 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O oh Lord, each year at this time, we revisit one of the accounts of our Lord Jesus' entering Jerusalem for his presentation as the sacrificial lamb for the forgiveness of our sins. Today, as we consider the account from John, please help us to understand the significance of what Christ did for us, down to the particular care that he took with his prophecy-fulfilling actions. 
Help us to comprehend with this hindsight the perspective of the various observers on that original day, especially in light of our knowing the full purpose of Christ's entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. I lift this prayer through Christ. Amen. For this morning, in an effort to appreciate the true and full purpose of Christ's entrance into Jerusalem, I want us to look at each of the different observers in this account. There are at least four groups that are named who are watching the events unfold on that original day, and they have a specific perspective based on their background, their life situation. Crowds of common people were there. Now, the crowds are a mixture from the crowds that were first there with Lazarus's raising in Bethany, some who would follow him along the way, and some who were already in Jerusalem. There were also the religious leaders. There are many of those, but the chief priests are the ones who are called out here because of their jealousy and their murderous intent. It's pretty chilling, really, when you see what they say and how they respond. But the religious leaders are among the crowds that see Jesus enter Jerusalem. Of course, the closest to Jesus would be his disciples. Not just the 12 disciples, but some of their family members. We know the two Marys. We know Martha could have been there as well. They're all coming in to Jerusalem. These were his closest disciples. We see their response. Finally mentioned, the last verse of the passage, the Pharisees. They only get one verse, but what they say, what they say really captures the whole of what we are watching. Four different observers in this account, four different reactions or understandings about Christ's purpose on that day, on that Palm Sunday. Each observer had their own interpretation on what Jesus was doing on Palm Sunday. Each observer, they came from a different place in life. When Jesus entered, they had their view of what he was doing. We now have the helpful benefit of hindsight. We know because of the fulfillment of Scripture and the life of Christ in these many years to contemplate this, we know why Christ came. But still, it's important to reflect on that question before we look at the original observers. Why did Jesus come to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? Well, the time for Jesus to be the Lamb of God, the sacrificial one for us, had finally come, long forecasted, many, many years before. And now, Jesus had finally come. In fact, it was 2,000 years before this episode that we're reading of, on a mountain not far away from where they stood, where Abraham brought his only son Isaac, as you will remember from Genesis 22. Abraham, he took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And the words that Abraham answers with will resonate through the centuries up to the day we are studying today. Abraham said to his son Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. The Old Testament is about God sending the sacrificial lamb, the Messiah, the Christ. The suffering Messiah forecasted from Genesis 3.15 tracks the coming of the lamb all the way through to this very moment on Palm Sunday. The time of Moses Deliver the nation of Israel from Egypt 
as a display of God's sovereign salvation. It was also for the purpose of growing the people of God, Israel, from which the Messiah would come. Do you remember how God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt? He sent a series of plagues. Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. Yet this band of slaves would be rescued or delivered by God through these plagues that would befall Egypt. The culminating plague, the most devastating of them all, was to send the angel of death over the land and strike the firstborn of every household. There was only one way to escape this just judgment of God. Take a spotless lamb, sacrifice it, and then take the blood and sprinkle it on the doorposts, symbolizing the blood covering that household. So when the angel of God's judgment came to your house, the blood of the perfect lamb declared that God's salvation had come to that place and the angel of death would pass over. Hence, the Passover feast was established. Every year, people brought their lambs from all over the region to Jerusalem, to the temple. They would come into that place at the exact time Jesus would be presenting himself on Palm Sunday as the sacrificial lamb to end all sacrifices. Everybody else would be bringing their lambs as well. But little did everyone know that the actual lamb of God forecasted since Genesis 3.15, the Messiah himself was also coming to Jerusalem to give himself as the sacrifice for sinners. This was the beginning of his week of passion, as it's called. To this point, he had been actively obeying God in every way that God commanded. But now he would passively lay himself down. And it starts with his presentation there on Palm Sunday. The brink of crushing the head of the serpent is on this day. But in crushing the head of the serpent, his heel would be bruised. Jesus was coming to lay himself down. That's why he came on Palm Sunday. But this reason is largely missed by the people who are watching. The ones who are observing aren't getting this completely. There was a collective recognition that something important was happening, something big was going on, but it wasn't everything that it actually was. Not to their minds. The varied reactions, in fact, to Jesus' entering Jesus on, uh, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday reveals various misunderstandings about his mission. Uh, the, the crowd, for instance, they went because they had heard of the sign he had done, some of them anyways, with Lazarus. The chief priests were upset that people were following Jesus, and so they wanted to not only kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. His own disciples are said to have not had understanding about these things, at least not at that moment. And the Pharisees, all they recognize is their power and influence diminishing. They see the world going after him. A review of these different reactions to Jesus on Palm Sunday will be helpful to deepen our appreciation for what Christ came to do. Let's look first at the crowds together, starting at verse 9. You'll see the reaction of the crowds. Now, I mentioned earlier, and I'll say it again, the crowds are mixed here. When the text refers to them, some of the crowds come from Bethany. They saw what happened. Um, some of them are along the way, and others were already there in Jerusalem. So there was a mixture. There was a curiosity for sure. 
Look what it says in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. They're trying to confirm, did this really happen? This rumor of him raising a man dead four days, they're curious. They want to know, did this really happen? So curiosity is one of the reasons. It says in verse 11, because on account of him, that is Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Uh, What an impact it was having. Curiosity. Also, it was causing belief. There were those who just genuinely believed on Jesus when they saw this. Maybe they'd seen him do other things, but this crowning miracle of raising a man who is in decay, in the tomb, raising him, that was what the Lord used to convince them and they believed. Look at verse 12. The next day the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, that curiosity peaking again. But now there's something more. There's a mixture of belief, but also I would submit to you, there's very likely, on the majority probably, some false expectations wrapped up in this. Now, they rightly apply scripture, but I'm not convinced that they completely understand the gravity of what they're saying. But they quote scripture, Psalm 118 and from Zechariah. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Combining the psalm and Zechariah, they're speaking prophetic language. But it's most likely that the crowd here sees how special Jesus is, and they're probably repeating a scene that happened just 200 years before. 200 years before this episode, there was a great Jewish liberator. He was a military liberator, a social liberator, you might say, Simon Maccabeus. And he received, actually, a much better welcome than this. He came in on a war horse because he had just led a revolt against the Syrians or the Seleucids, as they were called in those days, the so-called Maccabean Revolt. So it's quite possible that people were watching all unfold with Jesus and applied that same thought they had for Simon Maccabeus towards Christ. So they had false expectations that maybe Jesus is coming to be a liberator against the Romans the same way Maccabeus was against the Syrians. I'm not saying they all thought that, but a good number of them most likely did, because their tune changed towards the end of the week when they realized he wasn't that kind of liberator. What's really sad about the whole thing is that he's a much greater liberator. They had low expectations about what Christ was there to do. You'll notice also in verse 17, the crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. They continued to bear witness, so more belief The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. You can see a mixture. You can see curiosity. You can see some probably false expectations. And you can also see, they're mixed in with the rest of it, belief. True belief that this must be the Christ. What are your expectations concerning Jesus? Are they fair and accurate? Now that we we have the whole of the word of God and we know all he's done, far greater than a social liberator, Jesus liberates us from something that would be eternal. He rescues us from something that would last forever, much greater than an, an initial 
temporary liberator, to say the least. The people, sure, they wanted temporary relief, temporary relief from the Romans and the hard lives they were living. Do we require of Christ that he liberate us from whatever our trials or our troubles are that we might believe in him? Jesus, if you get me out of this one, I'll follow you. I'll believe in you if you cause this to work out a certain way for me. Now, I know that those situations that confront us can be difficult. They can be all-consuming at the moment. But we would make a mistake, like many of the crowds, no doubt, to limit what Jesus has come to do for us to just getting us out of our particular temporal problem. Because that temporal problem will resolve in some way at some point. But then there will be more after that. What Jesus came to do and what he accomplished is to secure for us an eternal, an eternal place with him that will then shade the rest of how we view our temporal life. This is one of the ultimate lessons that comes from what Christ does for us. People who have their ultimate questions answered and their eternity settled. They are in an opportune position to deal with the many challenges that life sends our way. We become more impactful in the present when our eternal future is secure. That's what many in the crowd, no doubt, learned about Christ and grasped. Still others probably were disappointed because they limited Jesus to their expectations. Jesus came to secure our eternal futures. That starts the moment he liberates us from our sin. And it goes on forever. And this brings us a peace with God as his adopted children that colors all of our life. The tune of some of the crowds changed. We see that as the story unfolds. And this is largely because of false expectations. But of course, God has to give us belief. Also, I want you to notice the reaction of the chief priests next. They show up in verse 10. There's not much said about them, but what's said is pretty chilling. Um, these people, what would make them so hateful and jealous that they would speak with such murderous intent? Well, wh who are the chief priests? Well, you know that the priests are the Levites, and there are hundreds of those, maybe thousands, and they keep the temple and the temple administration going. What's involved with that? Well, it's like the church, but it's massive, and the whole city of Jerusalem is around the temple. The temple was a point of pride because in the mighty Roman Empire, no one had their autonomy except really the Jews. They still were allowed to keep the temple in Jerusalem and in Judea. This bothered, this annoyed the Romans, but the Romans thought it'd be best to keep things at peace because of the, the past showings of the Jews. They would cause such a, a difficulty for them. It'd be easier to allow them to have some sense of autonomy. Well, the chief priests then became very important for the Jews because they were the, the ministers. They were the religious leaders who kept the sacrificial system going, not just the Passover, but daily sacrifices. Uh, they kept the, the temple moving and operating, the business of the temple around it too. There was much to keep the temple operating. And they were well off as a result of it. They were in a great place because of it. They were mediators between God and man as far as they were concerned and as far as the people were concerned. So if you're the chief priest, and then you hear of Jesus being proclaimed as the Messiah, perhaps, the Messiah who will end all these sacrifices, if this is the case, our whole life's going to change, they would think to themselves. Never mind that he might really be Messiah, and they should be pointing people to him. They're thinking, this is another person saying that kind of a thing. We've got to get rid of him. But then word comes that he raised a man who was dead four days. 
This isn't just some trick someone pulled off. You can't pull that trick off. We've got to kill him too. Look at verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. We can't have evidence of Jesus' lordship walking around. Because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. If the Jews go away and believe Jesus, who's going to support the temple in our livelihoods? Terrible example of ministerial leadership, of spiritual religious leadership. Spiritual leaders can be very susceptible to this kind of corruption. This is extreme, but corruption for sure. They can become intoxicated with the authority that they're given from the people and the authority they can exercise. People at their fundamental level have a desire to know what's beyond this life. I think most people naturally know this isn't all there is to it. Many people declare themselves materialists and they immerse their life into the material stuff of earth in the things that deal with it as a way to not think of ultimate questions. So when someone comes bearing answers, many people want to know what they have to say, and they follow them, follow them to an incredibly devoted level. And the chief priests had that kind of devotion from those people. Rather than direct attention away from themselves to the Christ, they enjoyed that attention, and that's what spiritual leaders sometimes do. They can fall prey to earthly hype and praise. Yet the role of ministers, the role of these ministers even, is to point people to God, to point people to what the temple represented, point people to what the sacrifices meant. So they should be the first celebrating when God reveals himself, when Christ comes. But their lust for influence and the continued adoration of the people completely blinds them to a murderous level where they're so jealous of what they get by way of the people's adoration that they're ready to kill anybody who might threaten it and they miss the truth altogether. Quite a reaction, but a reaction clearly in the passage before us. Look next at the disciples and their response. You see in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. So you could say for sure that when this was happening on Palm Sunday, Those closest to Jesus who loved him and believed in him but did not understand the specifics of what was falling out, they didn't understand it at first. They were confused. Confusion would be their reaction. Puzzlement a bit. They probably were disoriented a bit. They've been with him in private. They've seen all these things occur. Now it's a a huge public event and things are unfolding. People are yelling out scripture passages. What's happening? They're confused by this. Now, we know John lets us in a little bit. You know, John wrote this account uh, several years after Jesus rose again. And he says, note in verse 16, they didn't understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the disciples were going through their three years of intense teaching from Christ. But at that point, they weren't full on in belief. They were still learning and God was preparing them. And Jesus told them, don't worry, I'm going to send a helper so that you will remember all the things that I've told you, and they'll be able to understand and interpret them. And this is what John refers to. So eventually his disciples, when Jesus rises again and ascends into heaven, you remember what he does. He sends the Holy Spirit just like he promised, and then the people of God start really growing in his grace and knowledge. 
And no doubt, imagine being a disciple who for three years, you're confused about a lot of what he was said. You believed in him and trusted in him to save you. But all the specifics of what he fulfilled and why he was doing what he was doing, why he said this parable or taught this lesson or did that miracle, why was he doing all this? But then when the Holy Spirit comes, after Acts chapter 2, now the people of God have understanding, and that's why it says, Jesus, after he was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. Now, here's the beautiful uh, pause to the story for all of us to be encouraged. You live on the other side of the scriptures being completed. Jesus' work is complete. The Holy Spirit resides in you. We have his word, and we open it up with expectation that it will continue to grow us in his grace and knowledge. So we have some understandings that this initial audience would not have had. Still helps to imagine what it is they might be thinking, what their reaction would be, but praise God that we on this side of it, we have the Spirit working through the finished word and look forward to his coming again. His disciples, though, did not understand these things at first. His careful actions that day, so precise, no hesitation. What is he doing? Had to be the thought. They didn't understand the depth, the meaning, and the purpose on Palm Sunday anyways. In children of God, there are times of confusion about what God's will is. It's true what I just said. We have the finished word of God and have so much so much of a lens to see life through. But there will still be issues in your life, personal things, maybe corporate things that we don't understand. What worked for the disciples is their prior recognition of God's faithfulness. They could trust Jesus because they'd seen him always be faithful. So likewise, when we have unanswered questions, these can paralyze us. But God calls us to trust in him when those situations arise. Whatever, you, whatever situation you find yourself in, I am sure, I know for sure, many of you have, have enigmas in your life. You don't understand why this person's this way or why I'm finding myself with this challenge or why has the Lord brought this into my life or should I do this or should I do that? And there are confusing things that cause us to be puzzled. And God calls us to trust in his track record of faithfulness for whatever you're confused about now. And in this story, the disciples, of all of them, they didn't understand it. You still gain a sense, and I think this is why John gives the commentary, eventually they got it. You give a sense that this is the normal way of life, that there will be puzzlement, but God will prove himself over the course of time. We don't understand everything now, maybe not everything in this life for sure, but God will hold us fast nevertheless. So yes, the disciples had confusion and puzzlement, but this all served to draw them to a closer dependence upon Christ as the story unfolds. Finally, you'll notice in verse 19, just one verse is given to the Pharisees. We've seen the Pharisees throughout the Gospels. We know their place. The chief priests were religious leaders, ministers, pastors, you might say. The Pharisees were the cultural leaders of Judaism. They were the garters of Jewish tradition. They were traditionalists. Um, by that time in the first century, it wasn't all about following the word of God. There was a whole system around how you might follow the word of God that actually had displaced the word of God. It was more about acting Jewish in these ways, and it was elaborate. And they were, they were lawyers, and they were keepers of the culture. 
And they wanted the Jews as a nation to maintain their identity in Rome. So they were particularly, particularly dogmatic and hyperactive about their pressing Jewish culture into every moment. I'm, pressing, I'm stressing culture. It wasn't the religion so much that was part of their culture, at least the expression of it, but it was the traditions of the, the times that had come to that moment that they needed to conserve. They needed to keep them just the way they had always been. So when Jesus comes and shakes all this up, this rabbi with no pedigree, someone who could never be on the Sanhedrin, and he comes along with his teaching, his Bible explanation, his signs and his wonders, and not only the Jews were following after this guy, the world was going after him. John uses world very specifically in his gospel. The Jews thought of themselves as the chosen ones of God, and they didn't care so much about the nations beyond them. The use of world is to is for us to recognize not just the Jews in Jerusalem, but all the people in Jerusalem, whether they're Jews or not. That's how widespread Jesus' influence was. And this really alarmed, you could say the, the reaction of the Pharisees was alarm, uh, at the very least, but also distress and concern that someone could shake up their traditions and their identity as the Jews. Verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. They're talking to one another, lamenting that we're doing all this work to maintain the traditions of our times, uh, for all times, and it, we're gaining nothing. Because this guy comes along, the world, not just the Jews now, everybody's going after him. They're very concerned for how taken the people are, that they would leave their Jewish tradition. This would cost them and their power and influence, and this would mean the end of the Jewish identity, the way that the Pharisees thought it ought to be. They were about keeping tradition. Now, that's a challenge for us, even as believers. They were more about the tradition than being open to the Messiah when he actually came. Imagine that, the Jewish people all about looking for their Messiah, but their traditions had so clouded things, they couldn't see the Messiah right under their nose. For them, tradition or the ways things that always had been, that had become the Messiah. That had become their Savior. That had become what they trust in. They were traditionalists. The status quo, that's where our security is. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with tradition, so long as it points us to the right things. That's how we judge if a tradition is valuable or not. We talk about the Christian tradition. We need to mean the tradition that safeguards the unchanging message of the, of the Bible, the gospel. In that sense, Christian tradition is a good thing as it upholds that which transcends the times, the person of Jesus. It points us to his word. But traditionalism, where we're just secure because of the way we do things and not what it points to, that's a problem. That's where the Pharisees were. They were doing things without any, any growing critical thinking. The reformers like to say it this way, we're reformed according to the word of God. Reformed and always reforming. So yes, there will be things that withstand the test of time that Christians will always be doing. But we should always ask, why are we doing them? Are they pointing us to the Christ? They should not make us miss the Christ. That's exactly what the Pharisees were guilty of. They were not promoters of sacred tradition. They were promoters of Jewish tradition. Traditionalists. Yaroslav, Yaroslav Pelikan famously said, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. That's a special thing. 
We look back at the faith of those before us. How does it connect with our faith? It's in the person of Christ. Tradition, in the right sense, is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism, Pelican says, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. It's no good. It's the dead faith of the living. And then he says, I suppose I should add, it is traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. Pharisees, they were the traditionalists who gave the Jewish tradition of messianic expectation a bad name for sure. So four observations we've noted from four different people who were there on the first Palm Sunday. The crowds, curious, some believed, some had false expectations. The chief priests, jealous, they hated, and they were murderous and they're intense. That's what happens when you are jealous. Eventually it leads to murderous intent. The disciples, some confusion, puzzlement, some disorientation, for sure. But eventually, belief. The Pharisees, alarm, distress, concern. Four different people looking at the same event with different reactions. But for us, why did Jesus come to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? I'll close by a short scripture reading that takes us through this answer. Why did Jesus come to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? In 2000 BC, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering up. Isaac Isaac said, where is the offering? Abraham said, 2,000 years before Christ came, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. 1,300 years after Abraham, the prophet Isaiah, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, prophesies, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Then we fast forward to John the Baptist around 30 AD. John the Baptist, well steeped in the Old Testament's message, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just three years later, in the passage before us, the next day the large crowd had come to see to the feast. They had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And what are they yelling? Hosanna, save now. After Jesus goes to the cross, rises again, ascends into heaven. The Apostle Paul, some 25 years after Jesus' ascension, he's writing to the Corinthian church, a church made up of people that weren't just Jews. The world had gone after him. Greeks and people from Africa all over in Corinth, and they had come to Christ. A church was established there. And Jesus says to that church, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Then some 20 years, maybe 40 years after the time of Christ's ascension, John, the same John who wrote the passage we read, close to the end of his life, the Lord speaks to him again and he pens Revelation. 
And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God? And they, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Palm Sunday is the beginning of the Lamb of God laying himself down, and it leads to all of this. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus, we lay ourselves down before you and worship you, for you are truly the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins. We reflect on your life and your sacrifice, your death, your resurrection, and your ascension. We reflect on these every week. But for this specially designated season of reflection on your saving work, please refresh our appreciation and our devotion to you as we think again on what you have done for us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's take